One focus, one subject. Welcome to The Real Story, the podcast that brings together global experts to explain one issue shaping the news. BBC World Service podcasts are supported by advertising. You're listening to The Real Story with me, Paul Henley, and this week we'll be discussing the fighting in Syria. It's a fast-moving story with one very important question at its core. What is the role of the United States in shaping the future of Syria? You know, Syria was supposed to be a short-term hit, just a very short-term hit, and we were supposed to be in and out. And we only have 50 people in the Now, the latest twist in this long-running conflict happened a few days ago when, after a late-evening phone conversation with President Erdogan of Turkey, the US President Donald Trump gave consent for Turkey to go ahead and send its troops into Syria in areas that are controlled by Kurdish forces and backed by American troops. The announcement caught America's allies by surprise and it caught the president's supporters off guard. I don't want anything bad to happen to our people. And I told that to President Erdogan. I said, don't any of our people get hurt. Big trouble. But I I have told you. Now, soon after that phone call, the U.S. withdrew some of its soldiers from the Syrian-Turkish border. And Turkey moved in. Those were the sounds of Turkish jets taking off and of explosions across the border in Syria. President Erdogan of Turkey says the aim of his operation is to clear what he calls the terror corridor. And by that, he not only means the remnants of the Islamic State group, but perhaps more importantly, his target is also the Kurdish Democratic Forces. These forces have been working very closely with the United States in fighting IS. But to Turkey, they're synonymous with the PKK, which is an outlawed Kurdish organisation within Turkey. The border between Turkey and Syria is now a battlefield where two allies of the United States are actually pitted against one another. So does the United States have a coherent Syria policy? This week on The Real Story, we will sidestep the latest developments on the front line. You can go to BBC News' website for those. And we'll try to address the bigger questions about America's role in the war in Syria. Now, let me introduce you to our guests. In Washington, Daniel L. Davis is senior fellow and military expert at Defence Priorities, a military think tank. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. Dana Stroll is senior fellow at the Washington Institute and co-chair of the Syria Study Group, which was established by the U.S. Congress. She's in our D.C. studio as well. In Istanbul, Osman Set, who's research director at the Ankara Institute think tank and former advisor to the Turkish foreign minister and prime minister. And here with me in the studio in London, Elif Sarakan, an anthropologist from the London School of Economics. She's a Kurdish activist born in the U.K. to Kurdish parents from Turkey. Welcome all. And in just a few words, please, because there'll be plenty of time to elaborate soon, I'd like you all to say how you view this shift in U.S. policy, starting with you, Elif. How significant is it? I mean, it's a deeply significant shift in U.S. policy that can affect many developments and many situations to unfold in not just the near future, but in times to come as well. And so what happens right now and what happens again in the near future is absolutely crucial for not just the future of the Middle East, but perhaps even the world. Osman in Istanbul. 
From the Ankara's perspective, it is a very important shift regarding the American policy, which was stopping Turkey to make an operation in the region. On the one hand side, yes, it is being endorsed. The Turkish operation is endorsed by the American president. But it is a fact that Turkish operation, to an extent, is a victim of discussions in D.C. regarding impeachment and re-election priorities of uh, Donald Trump and the clashes within the you know, American capital. Dana Stroll. This is a very significant shift. The United States has said its top priority in Syria, the reason we have U.S. forces in Syria, is to defeat ISIS. And the manner in which the Turkish operation in northern Syria unfolds will have serious implications for whether or not we're actually able to complete the mission of defeating ISIS. Secondly, this is a significant shift in U.S. policy in the broader Middle East. If you look at several decisions by the current administration over the last several years, most in the region are probably wondering whether the United States can be relied on in the future. So a significant shift in terms of U.S. credibility. And retired Lieutenant Colonel Davis. Yeah, I think the shift by itself is unequivocally very significant. But I think the bigger question and the bigger problem is that there really is no coherent strategy. There's no coherent line of thinking that guides American policy that anyone, whether our opponents or our friends, can actually understand what our policy is going to be. So there's tremendous drift that is a big problem. Let's address this pretty big question, first of all. Have the Kurds been betrayed by their former allies, it it seems former allies, the US. What do you think, Osman? I do not agree with the definition of Kurds. Which Kurds we are talking about this issue? The American relations with the Kurds in the region is not a very good thing. We already know it. But if we are talking about uh, PKK affiliated, which was this is a terrorist organization in the United States and Turkey, a PKK affiliated YPG betrayed by the Americans, yet it's true. But if we are talking about Kurds, it is a bit complicated issue, I think. Well, it's not that complicated when President Erdogan tweets that he, he wants to launch an attack on terrorists within this zone over the border. Is, is he just talking about IS? I don't think so. Of course, the main Turkish concern is about PKK-affiliated YPG. It is not a secret, okay? But regarding ISIS as well, Turkey was giving a very huge fight at the last, you know, a couple of years. But it is true that PKK is a very important security threat against Turkey. And just fighting with uh, YPG, PKK, is the number one priority for Turkey. It's a fact. Elif, as a Kurdish activist, do you think the Kurds in northern Syria have been betrayed? I mean, I think the wide feeling is that there is a level of betrayal, but I think this is less actually about a US betrayal per se, but it's more about the effects and what a Turkish invasion will do and is has already begun to do because as the US army and as Trump has you know in some ways declared but also is a consensus of the acceptance that the US soldiers the few US soldiers that were still positioned there until Sunday night or Monday morning were there essentially to act as human shields to stop a Turkish invasion and now i think it's a deeply perverse way of speaking about a people when we say which kurds because then we can say which english and which turks and which so and so 
when there is an attack against civilians, we don't need to look too far about what the effects of this will be. You know, we saw what happened in Afrin in January 2018, when almost uh, all civilians were killed and 300,000 people were displaced from a population of 800,000. Dana Stroll, there's not much doubting, is there, that the Kurds are now being left to their own devices. They no longer have the protection of the US. They're saying, go your own way. Yes, and I think it's important to take a step back and refresh memories about how we got to this point. Mm. So when ISIS in 2014, 2015 uh, expanded through Iraq rapidly, ISIS then went across the border into Syria, terrorizing communities, set up its capital in Raqqa in eastern Syria, and sat on one-third of Syrian territory from where they were planning attacks against the United States, against Europe, and against allies and partners in the Middle East of the United States, including Turkey. And on the ground, at a very specific point in time, elements of of Syrian Kurds rose up and demonstrated the capability and the will to focus exclusively on defeating ISIS. What it's allowed the United States to do is not deploy into Syria in a large force size like what we have in Iraq or what U.S. forces are doing in Afghanistan, but a very light U.S. military footprint with a broad air campaign to support the Syrian democratic forces, of which the YPG is one element of this broader 30,000 force. There's Arabs and then other Kurds that are not YPG-affiliated Kurds. And together, they've pushed ISIS out of all of the territory it sat on. And to address Turkish concerns about the affiliations between the YPG and the PKK, you've had this incredible effort by the U.S. government working with counterparts in Ankara to establish a safe zone. And in that safe zone, the United States, I agree, has has positioned itself as the confidence-building entity and protected the Kurdish elements of the Syrian Democratic Forces so that they can remove heavy fortifications, move their heavy weapons, and move back from a specific area in northern Syria that Turkey identified. Yes, and now they've left them high and dry. Exactly. And this is where we are today, which is actually if that safe zone had been given time to expand and build upon itself, there may have been a way to use diplomacy to address Turkey's concerns without risking the loss of life and devastation of this area. So I think it's not only a broader betrayal, but very specifically, there are families of these fighters that we have put on the front lines and asked them to risk their lives and their communities to fight ISIS. And now we're turning away. What do you make of that, Daniel L. Davis? Yeah, I I think the way that we've handled it, I I think that uh, Dana is very articulate in the way she's described this, and it's it's very accurate and very concerning and troubling. But what what, what Donald Trump has effectively said, and he's made this clear, is is that it was a transactional relationship that the U.S. had with the Kurds. You've done your job. Now we don't care about you anymore. Right. And that's why I say the way it's been done is is just awful. But it's very important for all parties to understand that there was never any expectation that the United States military was going to remain in Syria, you know, into perpetuity to defend the Kurds. That should never have been even thought of. No one should ever have thought that. So there should always have been from the beginning an expectation that as soon as certain operations were done and and our mutual areas of of concern were met, that we would redeploy. And the important part of that is to understand that also that the biggest benefactor in this has been the Kurds who live in there and who were under fire and under threat from the ISIS. And basically, they were given use of the United States Air Force, without which it would have been much more difficult. But one thing I really want to point out is that the threat from ISIS was to the regional areas and the regional people, and certainly within Syria, and 
almost no threat to the United States, despite what many people think. I just think that as a military man, I can just tell you evidence shows that we were not at risk. So this is something that we need to withdraw from because it's not our fight. It's not our country. But the way we handled it was horrible, and it could have been done a lot better. And we'll talk much more about the consequences of that withdrawal soon. Osman Sert in uh, Turkey. Perhaps this is a good opportunity for you to explain to those who don't understand why Turkey feels so threatened by Kurds outside its borders. When the American forces are arming this paramilitary group, uh, YPG over there, nobody can guarantee that this ammunition and the weapons will be transferred to PKK, which is both labeled as the terrorist organization. And it is being, a joint region is being, you know, established between Kandil and Syria and just up till Afrin. It is, the, you know, the true Minbich as well. And unfortunately, the America didn't have a coherent, consistent policy on Syria. They pushed Turkey to topple Assad Okay, they even didn't let Turkey to have diplomatic relations with Assad, and then they sided with him. And then their priority is not, you know, this gangster or whatever we call mafia-like administration in Damascus, but ISIS. It's true, but it is not solving the problems on the ground. And now Turkey is taking its own uh, steps. I know that regarding, you know, uh, the problems with Kurds in in Turkey, okay. uh, the political pressures in Turkey. It is not easy for Turkey to tell that it is. Impartial against Kurds. I understand that, but it is not denying the legitimacy of the operation regarding Ankara's perspective. First, Osman says, I need to put your points about the Kurds to yeah. Elif Sarakan. Please. Uh, tell me, Elif, about the relationship between the American-backed Kurds in northern Syria and the PKK, who are regarded by the Turkish government as terrorists within Turkey. They are friends, aren't they? They're not strangers. I mean, it's, it's interesting because... Um, one one thing I would like to mention is that it, there is an entire, almost an entire consensus about the illegitimacy of this invasion. You know, public opinion has come out very much against this. Many people internationally has, have come out against this. And a lot the of Turkish government says it's not an invasion. They hate that phrase. Of course they do. And, and this morning Erdogan threatened Europe by saying if they call it an invasion that he will open the doors to Europe and allow 3.5 million refugees into Europe. So that's the way he's trying to convince the world. But tell but us I about think, the relationship yeah. between the PKK and the American. So I think, you know, this is interesting because while the, the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces were fighting and defeating ISIS, they were building a d- democratic, ecological and women's liberationist system exactly at the same time, based on communes and uh, neighbourhood assemblies and cantons where, where there's a co-chair system for women and where there's a minimum 40% quota for women on every level of administration. Now, that that system, the architect of that system, is uh, the founder of the PKK, Abdullah Öcalan. This is the philosophical connection the YPG and the PKK have. The Turkish government says there's more than a philosophical connection. I mean, the if they if figures they can, in both organisations are interchangeable. If they can prove this, then we can have a discussion about this. But the US have been told this many times, and they've looked into it, and they've said there's not anything that is substantial enough for us to act upon. Here's a reminder: you're listening to the real story from the BBC World Service with me, Paul Henley, and we're going to discuss now whether this big change in US foreign policy we're talking about in Syria might be good news for so-called Islamic State. The forces of Daesh, common enemy of almost 
all the powers at play in the Syrian war are seen to be all but defeated. Many thousands of their fighters are imprisoned in camps in northern Syria, camps run by the Kurds who played a key role in defeating them. If an influx of Turkish fighters threatens the security of those camps, could ISIS become resurgent? If that happens, would President Trump be to blame? Now, I've been speaking to Saleh Muslim, who's the spokesman for the Democratic Union Party, which is the dominant Kurdish political party in the northeast of Syria. Could the Kurdish-led forces fight off a Turkish attack on their own, I asked him, with the Americans out of the picture? Well, we are not asking them, I mean, to come and hold the weapons instead of us. But uh, as a partner, they should do something because this war and this invasion is the extension of the war with Daesh. We have even some names, the emirs of ISIS, which they were working with ISIS. They escaped to Turkey and they are now leading these mercenaries which they are working with the Turkish army on the other side of the border. And does this Turkish military operation endanger the security of the prisons that you run for ISIS prisoners? Well, yes, there was uh, some bombardment around the prison called Jirin. So if uh, any wall of this prison destroyed, maybe all of them, they will escape. And they know very well the place of this prison inside Khamishlo. They know what they are doing. And the most strange thing, uh, I mean, uh, Trump saying, well, Erdogan is responsible for Daesh from now on. So this is a problem, really, because everybody knows. And Mr. Trump also knows who supplied this Daesh, who established them, who trained them, who supplied them, and even financed them. It was Turkey, or by hand of Turkey. Well, that's something Turkey denies, of course. Yes, sure. Well, they are saying we are the only country we fought against Daesh. If the trust is now so gone it, between it, you and, and the Americans, does it mean that no, you will no, have to have discussion with the Russians and with the government in Damascus? Is, is that the change that's going to happen now? Uh, well, we don't know what will happen, but there was a call from Mr Lavrov, the foreign minister of Russia. Uh, he's trying to mediate between the autonomous area and the Syrian uh, government, so it's welcome. What are you hopeful of getting from the Syrian government? They're never going to grant you full autonomy in the north of their country, are they? Well, we don't know. They should change their mentality. I mean, dictatorship and despotic regimes as it was before 2011 is not acceptable for all of Syrians. Russia, we asked them since 2012 to make some pressure in the Syrian regime to change their mentality, but they've never done it. It must seem to you that the Kurds are in a constant state of conflict. So many enemies, so few firm friends. Yeah, this is our fate. That was Saleh Muslim, who's a Kurdish political spokesman in northeastern Syria, and his message... Dana Stroll is pretty clear, isn't it? It's this is all a war against IS and Trump supporters at home might not be bothered by the details of this conflict, but that's one concept they will get. Uh, The US policy might liberate IS fighters and indirectly make IS a force to be reckoned with abroad again. Yes, that is the primary risk. The United States has said that its top objective in Syria is fighting ISIS, but then it's said that it has two other objectives. 
One is countering Iranian activities in Syria. And the third is supporting a political process to address the underlying causes of the entire Syrian conflict. And that starts with Assad and the regime in Damascus. So for any of these priorities, the about face of the United States in the last several days undermines any progress. If you want to talk about the political process, there was an announcement on the formation of a constitutional committee that will negotiate on a new constitution for Syria. Certainly the presence of U.S. forces in our air campaign has acted as a deterrent to prevent Iran from consolidating lines of access from Tehran through Baghdad, Damascus, and then to Beirut. And certainly when it comes to ISIS, it's not just about the fact that the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces will now be focused on protecting their families and communities in northern Syria. All of these issues and priorities are now very much at risk. I do not want to underestimate ISIS, but the problem is that if a pain is touching to the Americans, they are screaming, I understand. But it is not the only problem in the region. This problematic policy is continuing throughout you know, the Obama period, and now Trump is just repeating it. And it was impossible for the Americans to keep a balance between a PKK-affiliated YPG just to stop ISIS and Turkey, which is the second greatest army, biggest army in NATO. It was impossible. That's why regarding ISIS, if ISIS is a threat for everybody, for the Kurds, for the Americans and for the Turks, then it should don't be an issue how to tackle with ISIS. Everybody so, can Daniel come together L. To Davis, deal with it. is President Trump going to have to shut up about ISIS in Syria now? Well, our ability to defend ourselves from ISIS or from al-Qaeda affiliates or from any other terrorist anywhere in the world remains intact and, and is not necessary to have troops on the ground in Syria. In fact, I've been long arguing that our presence there is actually a great risk and provides no benefit to that country. And we should have withdrawn in 2018, in March 2018, when Trump first said we were going to. And some of this problems might have been avoided right now. But uh, I, I certainly do agree with the concept that this is definitely not just a about ISIS. I mean, maybe some would like to have it, but I mean, you're goodness gracious, you still have a civil war being fought there. You have the interests of Russia, of Turkey, of Iran, Syria itself, and there's still numerous rebel groups that are fighting in there, in addition to the Kurds. But how close to the United hearts States. of, so of Trump's own supporters, his voters, how close to their hearts are all those issues when you pit them against ISIS as the enemy? Well, the United States and President Trump, if he really cares about the voters, the American voters have been very clear in increasing numbers in recent months that they want us out of the Middle East. These All these wars that we've been fighting, pointless wars, sacrificing for nothing, the American public wants out. So in terms of to policies, this is something that's a, it's a winning strategy for Trump. If you're not worried about actually conducting diplomacy and, and having some positive outcomes, but you're just looking to placate your voting population, this is actually a good move. But of course, I think that's it's an absolute terrible way to go, and it's not going to have the result that he wants. The interesting thing about what the U.S. military commitment in Syria is, if you ask your average American anywhere other than Washington, D.C., they probably don't even know that we have a thousand forces in Syria. This is not the same military investment as Iraq or Afghanistan. It hasn't been tens of thousands of forces, and our, our military has been gradually and incrementally withdrawing from the ground in Syria since the president announced it last December. The issue is not should we be in Syria or not in Syria. The question is how do we leave Syria? And just to remind you, you're listening to a podcast edition of The Real Story from the BBC World Service, this week looking at the US strategy towards Syria. 
Each week we tackle a different topic, and you can download the program every Friday. I encourage you to subscribe so you won't miss an edition. And there are also many other BBC World Service podcasts you can choose from. You could try Witness, our history series told by the people who were there. First-hand accounts of some of the most important events which have helped to shape our lives and the places we live in. There are five podcasts a week and an incredible archive to delve into. And do please let us know what you think of this podcast from the real story, or any ideas for topics you'd like us to look into in the future. You can email us at therealstory@bbc.co.uk. But now let's get back to this edition of the Real Story with me, Paul Henley, looking at the implications of a U.S. withdrawal from Syria. I'm joined from Washington by Daniel L. Davis, senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, a military think tank. He's a retired lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army. Dana Stroll is in Washington too. She's senior fellow at the Washington Institute and co-chair of the Syria Study Group, which was established by the U.S. Congress. In Istanbul, we have Osman Sert, who is research director at the Ankara Institute think tank. And former advisor to the Turkish Foreign Minister and the Turkish Prime Minister, and here in the studio with me in London, Elif Sarakan, a Kurdish activist and anthropologist from the London School of Economics. Now, earlier in the program, we discussed whether the decision by President Trump to allow Turkey to make military incursions into Kurdish-controlled areas in Syria. Was a betrayal of an ally. We also discussed the possibility of Islamic State bouncing back. In the next few minutes, we'll discuss what these developments say about U.S. policy for Syria, or does it actually have a policy? There's one for Daniel L. Davis. Is it coherent what they're doing in Syria? Unfortunately, absolutely not. In fact, I think anyone would be hard pressed to even find out what our policy is, what we want to accomplish. What it should be is to preserve American security and our ability to prosper as a nation, which means that we need to not be involved in any capacity with what's going on in Syria because there's a civil war that's going on there, and we don't have an outcome that we're seeking. We're not trying to make one side win or the other because, as Dana pointed out earlier, we don't have enough troops there. To To do anything, even of a tactical nature, the important part for the United States to say is how do we protect ourselves? Because it's ISIS has always been up front and it's always talked about. But we defend ourselves from other ways outside of ISIS or outside of the area, and so we need to move our troops out of there so that we can preserve our security and not get us into、uh, someone else's fight. And Dana Stroll, President Trump has been saying before he was even elected that he would get American troops out of Syria. We're three years on; it hasn't happened. That's right. This is Washington whiplash right now. Whatever officials in the Pentagon or the State Department say about what U.S. policy or U.S. goals in the Middle East are, the next day it changes via presidential tweet or presidential phone call、uh, or presidential statement out in front of the White House. So, so one, I think for sure there is a、uh, incoherence in U.S. policy because we don't have a good interagency or bureaucratic process now for making decisions and then resourcing them to to see them through. And if I'm sorry, if I could just piggyback onto that, that that was so powerfully illustrated when Trump first announced all this tweet that we're going to get out days before that. Actually, almost hours before that, you had the Secretary of Defense working with the his counterpart in Turkey on a joint patrol to to try to prevent some of these things so that this wouldn't be necessary. And then, without any coordination, all of a sudden, Trump radically changes that. 
throwing everyone into confusion to include our own Defence Department. Yeah, it's this flip-flopping. Osman Sert in Turkey, the Turkish government must be very pleased uh, that President Trump has said, go ahead, take troops into northern Syria. But tomorrow he could change his mind. That's true. The problem for the Turkish government is that there is a mess at the other side of the table. You need to make a deal. You need to make negotiations. You need to make some bargaining with your counterparts regarding, you know, diplomatic process. On the one hand side, you know, a president who should be representing and governing the country is telling something. And just a few hours later, he is uh, threatening your country with, you know, devastating your economy. And that's why it is real problematic. Elif Sarakan, were the Kurds fools ever to trust that Donald Trump and Washington was on their side? The relationship between the Syrian Democratic Forces and the US uh, was always a tactical alliance for a particular cause. It was against ISIS. Brett McGurk said the other day as well, even that alliance or that relationship began before Trump. But it was Trump who made the decision to arm the... YPG arm of the Syrian Democratic Forces. And also it was this alliance, contrary to um, especially what the Turkish president would say, um, Brett McGurk, who was the presidential envoy to Syria, who spent a lot of time on the ground, said... And he resigned last year. And he resigned last year. And you know, he said the US did not partner with the SDF over realistic alternatives, but because particularly the Turkish-backed opposition, Syrian opposition, was riddled with extremists, including al-Qaeda and some ISIS remnants as well. This is by an expert who spent a lot of time on the ground. Let's hear from someone who was one of the top Middle East specialists in the US State Department. He's Robert Ford, the last American ambassador to Syria. In 2014, he resigned over the Obama administration's refusal to provide more support to the Syrian opposition. He's now supportive of President Trump's position on Syria. I have to say that the Middle East is never going to be perfectly stable because of anything the Americans do. I think it's important for listeners to understand the Americans cannot fix the Middle East. And on this, I actually agree with the president that at some point the Americans have to say we've done the best we can and they have to pull back and give regional powers, countries like Turkey, Iraq, and yes, even the horrible Assad government, give them more responsibility for reestablishing stability in that region. Former American ambassador to Syria, Robert Ford. Dana Stroll, is it just the case that the world, but particularly America, has overestimated its importance in the region? That, That he makes a fair point. America can never fix things in the Middle East. I think there is a realization here in America that you actually hear very similar arguments on both the right and the left of the political spectrum right now about more humility and recognition of the limits of what the United States can accomplish to bring about sustainable change in the Middle East. And where does public opinion lie on it? Public opinion mostly focuses on U.S. military investments and not wanting our young men and women risking their lives in the region if they don't see partners, allies and governments stepping up to share the burden. And you actually hear that, you know, President Trump talks about burden sharing. So did President Obama. So so this is actually something that is that is a common theme in Washington, where I want to just point out a difference with Ambassador Ford. 
it's not just about pulling out of the Middle East or disengaging from the Middle East. It's the manner in which you do it. So when the United States makes commitments to governments, to local partners, even the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, no matter how controversial it is, you have to think about what signal it sends, not only today, but to future partners that we may want to work with if all of a sudden overnight you changed the commitments that you made and said, well, we made a commitment to you. We asked you to take these steps that put at risk your own lives and the lives of your families, and then you change it the next day. And number two, yes, we should be figuring out ways to empower and hand over responsibility to the region, to the people that actually live in the region. But when it comes to Syria, a key question is the manner in which the United States leaves and U.S. forces leave. Is it likely to save more lives or are more people likely to die as a result of how the United States leaves? It's not as if Assad and Damascus and the Russians and the Iranians are going to sit passively by and watch what's going to happen. They're going to see that a third of Syria, the most resource rich with hydrocarbons and agriculture of Syria that the United States effectively owned via its partner, the SDF, now uncovered what's going to happen. Assad is going to go back in. Russia is going to work with Assad to support. And we know what a Assad and Russian-backed operations look like. It's chemical weapons, it's barrel bombs, it's medical sieges, it's starvation sieges, it's forced disappearances, it's torture, and it's more death. And that is an implication of what just happened. Well, let's reverse the question and see what the region thinks of American involvement there. Josie Ensor is the Middle East correspondent of the UK's Telegraph newspaper, and she's been speaking to people from Syria. There was a lot of disappointment for Obama um, in the Middle East from from all sides, actually. You know, he, he appeared to be someone that promised things that were never delivered. And then here was Trump. He was coming in. He was a, he wasn't the statesman like Obama was. He was just a straight talking businessman, a deal maker, a strong man. And a lot of Kurds, they yeah, they looked at that and they thought as a strong man leader that he would stick up for them. And especially because they had this shared battle against ISIS that, you know, perhaps that he might just strike them the deal for their survival, for their autonomy that that had been promised for so long and never been delivered. Maybe you could give us an example or two of conversations you've had recently in the Middle East about the US president. I think, I mean, people are still, they still think that Trump is going to, you know, turn it around for them again. I mean, a lot of them some of them are very disappointed and now they've you know they've realized what kind of a character Trump is that he's only motivated by self-interest but there's still you know there's still quite a lot of them who say you know he's a flip-flopper he said this in December but then you know the troops stayed and i think that possibly i mean even Trump himself has been saying you know if turkey goes in too far we can financially and economically destroy you so i think that somehow some of them still think that he's still the sort of saviour figure, that no matter what he said, that maybe he'll come back from that and there'll be some turn in the tide. And how uh, do you think he's seen, for instance, by the Syrian government? I think they're um, probably um, revelling in the chaos that Trump has caused. I mean, Trump has never had a cohesive strategy on how to deal with Russia in Syria. Obviously, the Russia is a partner of the Syrian government. I think they revel in it. I think that his um, policies are so chaotic that, I mean, only only they can benefit from something like that. And I think a lot of people have said, you know, America in the West has kind of been playing tiddlywinks while Assad and Russia have been playing chess. What do you think this is going to do to the US's reputation in the Middle East? It's going to have dented a lot of trust that people have in America. And also, I mean, the Kurds are not even the first 
group that America has let down in Syria. I mean, if you look at the FSA, the kind of moderate rebel groups that America was funding and arming for years, I mean, they just sort, sort of left them as well to fight Assad and sort of said, you know, more radical elements have taken over. You're on your own now. I mean, everyone in Syria pretty much has been let down by Trump, but maybe not quite as catastrophically as this one. And I think it will be a long time before anyone takes anything that America says seriously. Josie Ensor, she's Middle East correspondent with the Telegraph newspaper here in the UK. And following on from that, Osman said, could peace be better served by the US removing itself from influence in the Middle East? I disagree with it. I disagree with it because for a very long time, the Americans are just leaving the ground to the Russians. It started with Georgia and then continued with uh, what happened in Ukraine, and then they pulled out all the you know the forces in Iraq and left Iraq in turmoil. There was a very huge civil war over there, and then it came to Syria, and it is not an only a Syrian issue. And and if you look, just let the issue to the Russians and the Iranians. It is so difficult for the region to find an equilibrium. If you are a superpower, if you are you know the number one you know the military uh, power of the region, then you need to take the responsibilities. You need you you cannot just control, you know, the uh, oil resources and let the, you know, the social chaos continue in the region. It is a very big mess. And that's why the Iran and Russia is increasing its force, its power in the region. And I do not think it's my personal view. It is not good for Turkey as well. And that's why you need to find the balance. Elif Sarakan, how can America ever be trusted by the Kurds, but in the region generally now? The aim and uh, the what what we're trying to get to internationally, of course, must be no uh, foreign involvement in these regions. You know, we saw 100 years ago because of the Sykes-Picot agreement, the carving up of the region, especially in the last century, there has been um, there has been constant sectarian conflicts. There has been war. There's been wars. There's been massacres. There's been genocides, and it only benefits uh, strong leaders and dictators, but not the people so of that region. So are the Kurds better off seeing themselves as on their own? Daniel and Dana make good points about a withdrawal, but what kind of withdrawal? So I think, you know, the Syrian Democratic Council, which is the umbrella, including the Syrian Democratic Forces, have been calling to be included in the rewriting of the Syrian constitution for a long time. Ultimately, like I said at the beginning, it's not about the US per se, but it's about what the US soldiers were acting as. And so therefore, how that needs to translate into a political and a diplomatic solution for the people of that region. You know, right now, the Turkish invasion puts 5 million lives at risk, including uh, about 3 million Kurds, but not just Kurds, it's Arabs, it's Assyrians, it's Turkmen, it's Syriacs. Armenian villages were bombed yesterday. Dana Stroll, can the US be an influential player without actually having boots on the ground? Is there a way? Absolutely. And that would require empowering our diplomats, using our foreign assistance and using other non-military tools effectively and coherently. And it would require a firm line of communication between the White House and those diplomats. Right. And, a consi- and, consistent, and consistent and elevated political leadership by the White House in concert with, with, with the other apparatus of, of the U.S. government. What do you make of that, Daniel Davis? Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This whole situation could have been avoided with, with solid diplomacy and a good strategy among all the different players. But diplomats who disagree with whatever President Trump thinks on the day will simply be disowned. Well, and then that's that's really the heart of it. Until you get somebody at the top that's willing to change that priority, we're going to continue to have chaos. And I just just it 
kills me to say that. I'm just going to add two things here, one of which is that diplomats, career foreign service officers serving in the State Department, serve all administrations, regardless of what the strategy or the policy is. There were plenty of diplomats that disagreed with aspects or elements of the Obama administration policy, the George W. Bush administration policy, et cetera, but they continued to serve because they believed in the United States and its standing and leadership in the region. And two, one of the real tragedies that no one is discussing right now about the Turkish operation is that you actually had a fabulous diplomatic team who really prioritized and were seeking to restore the U.S.-Turkey relationship. Ambassador Jim Jeffrey, the envoy for the ISIS coalition, Ambassador David Satterfield in Ankara, these were people who were working exhaustively with the U.S. military to use a very light U.S. military input to reinforce a diplomatic strategy. And now that's gone as well. You're with the real story from the BBC World Service. And in the final part of this program, I wonder if we can ask the question of who wins from U.S. disengagement in Syria now. Osman Set, what's the best case scenario from a Turkish national point of view here? We need to discuss about who is losing. I totally agree that from all this chaos, the Syrian people, uh, they are losing from this battle. It doesn't matter who is winning it. But I totally you know, think that first the Iranians are winning about this issue. The Russians are winning uh, this issue. And Assad is winning. Why? Because though he is not controlling his own country more than, you know, the 70 percent, he is he doesn't have any control. The Russians and Iranians, Turks and, you know, the, you know, the Americans are controlling it. But but still he is staying in the power regarding the best option. Regarding, there should be a, maybe a modus vivendi and equilibrium should be found among the parties. And then with a, a truce period, you know, some some. Uh, reconstruction or rehabilitation process should start and a political you know, uh, solution should be found for, for it and the new political uh, solution, uh, you know, the new parties, whoever they are, you know, the, the Kurds, the Turkomans, the Sunni Arabs, whatever they are, should have a say in the future of the country but unfortunately for the coming very short period it is so difficult to predict that there will be such kind of balanced political atmosphere will exist in the country. One of the aims of the Turkish government is to put lots of refugees who have fled Syria and are currently living in Turkey. Back in this so-called safe zone that you're trying to create in northern Syria, the refugees aren't from there. They don't belong there. It's an uphill task, to say the least, isn't it, to just rehome them there? Yes, they are not from the northern Syria, but they are not from Turkey as well. And Syria, at the end of the day, their own country. And Turkey is hosting more than three million refugees. And you know, spent billions of dollars. And the problem is that Turkey is passing through a dramatic economic crisis. It's a huge political issue if you've got lots of of, um, needy refugees while you enter a recession. Of course it is. Exactly. I I wonder, Ailey, are you concerned about the demographic change in that part of northern Syria if three million immigrants suddenly arrive? On the 24th of September at the General Assembly of the United Nations, Erdogan holding a map declared that he was about to change the demographic of this region, which in effect means ethnic cleansing. He, unusual to many other world leaders, he essentially declared beforehand that he was about to commit war crimes because an unprovoked attack is also a war crime. Now, with there the are refugee enough people in the international community ready to check him if there are war crimes committed, aren't there? Uh, well, I would hope so, but the United Nations, but he declared this at the United Nations and he held up a map and, you know, before there was a back and forth about a five kilometre, ten kilometre, fifteen kilometre so-called safe zone and the SDF and the SDC 
implemented all of their end of the bargain, but now there's a Turkish invasion. Daniel Davis, are you worried about Turkey, uh, an ally and a NATO partner, committing war crimes in Syria? Well, it's certainly a possibility. I mean, there's been all kinds of all the participants in here have done uh, many things that uh, I think that could be considered that. And, you know, when you don't have a lot of observers there, those those kinds of risks are go up. Dana Stroll, one thing's for sure. uh, Putting more troops into northern Syria is unlikely to uh, to lead to peace, at least in the short run. This is a seven year old conflict. It's pretty sure that what's happened this week is prolonging it, is it? There's mixed reports about exactly what U.S. forces are doing. Right now, it seems that only some have moved back from their positions in northern Syria. But I do think it's unlikely that the broader U.S. force level in Syria has increased. So you think that the U.S. might just be saying it's leaving but not intending to? I think what you're seeing is the very difficult unraveling of what the president wants and how the Pentagon implements it because – our military forces, you can't just withdraw them overnight. They have equipment. They have sensitive tools there that need to be removed. They have vehicles. You can't just pack well, all hang on. of What you're up. saying is they're not going to leave. They're going to slyly stay. Is that it? Well, I think there are accusations or concerns that that's what's actually happened since the president announced his desire to leave Syria last December. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily malicious in nature. What I'm saying is that our forces bring a lot of capabilities with them when they deploy into an area, and it cannot be packed up safely and securely in 24 hours. What and about, I'm sorry, if I could yeah, just jump on. in there real quick. There, there has been a lot of misreporting. Trump never said that we were withdrawing from Syria. He only said he's going to reposition about 50 troops further south out of the way of the Turkeys. So right now there's no pro, uh, promise at all that we're going to withdraw, though I think we should. What of the Syrian refugees in Turkey? Uh, can we talk about the future for them? Because this conflict will never be over until millions of displaced people have some kind of security in the future. How how do you see it working, Elif? For sure, we need to find a way that these people can find a secure and safe home. Including accommodating some in Kurdish territory? Yeah, I mean, the Kurdish territories are not just Kurdish. Historically and even currently, you know, as I said, the SDF control is home to 5 million people, including, you know, just under 3 million Kurds. So, like, there's... And the assembly structures and the uh, cantons that the the Kurdish forces have built also include Arabs, Turkmens, Assyrians, Syriacs, Yazidis, and so on. So even when, uh, before the invasion of Afrin and before the Syrian civil war, Afrin's population was about 400,000. And during the eight-year conflict in Syria, the uh, population of that region doubled because they welcomed these people. Regarding this northern uh, Syrian issue, now there is a relatively stable period over there and the, the refugees are not turning back to this you know uh, SDF uh, controlled uh, region because it is being seen as an extension of Assad regime because it is the region was transferred to PYD at 19th of July 2012 without any ballot just the regime gave the keys to P- PYD to control the region and as long as the you know the YPG is controlling the region the people won't go back to the, the place but they are going back to the Euphrates Shield region as well. And Turkey needs to find something. There are some alternatives. One, as much as possible, sending them back to some secure areas in the Syria. And second, accommodating Turkey, maybe some giving some citizenship, some permits to work. And, and he needs to find out a, position, a policy because otherwise it will be very difficult for Turkey to carry the burden. What's your relationship, your government's relationship like with Moscow right now? 
it's a very delicate relations on the one hand side because of you know the Obama administration's disappointments and the, the, this relations with Turkey. Turkey was pushed to Russia, and only with Russian cooperation, Turkey got uh, green light to enter into Syria to control it. To, with, but you, you know, try to tr- a tricky line, don't you? I don't think that you know a very you know strong relations with Russia is sustainable for Turkey. Turkey need to find a balance on the relations with Russia. Otherwise, it will be so difficult for Turkey to sustain the relation. When you want to turn your back to, to Russians, the problem is that EU is in chaos with Brexit and other things. The America is in an isolationist policy, and it's a very problematic for Turkey, and it's being sandwiched within the Americans and the Russians. Elif, the Kurds are not against a closer relationship with Russia, are they? The concern of the Syrian Democratic Council, which also includes the Syrian Democratic Forces, the biggest priority for, for them is the safety, security and stability of the people that they are looking after right now. And so therefore, if that means negotiations with Russia, if that means negotiations with Assad, if that means negotiations with the US and so on, then they are open to all of it. And as Salih Muslim earlier mentioned, they're open for all of these talks because the priority is to make sure that these people are safe. Here on The Real Story on the BBC World Service, we've been discussing the consequences of President Trump's decision to give a green light, or as some people have argued, for Turkish forces to enter northern Syria. I'm going to end the programme with a brief question and a brief answer from you all, which is, will the US ever, do you think, be able to untangle itself from the Middle East, from Syria specifically, from the Middle East in general? A quick answer from Dana Stroll. It depends upon what you mean by untangle. What we know about the Middle East is that problems in the Middle East do not stay in the Middle East. U.S. solutions to the Middle East cannot be U.S. only, and they don't have to be military only. The United States can remain involved in the Middle East, looking at non-military tools and arguably with capable partners over time, contribute to enduring solutions like ending conflicts. Osman Sert, is this the start, do you think, of an untangling? I don't know. If if you escape from the realities and tensions of the region, then they will come and caught you. And that's why it is not an easy for any country, especially a country like America. You can you can just turn a blind eye to the to what's happening in the region because Iran is over there and at the outside, you know, Israel is over there. To what extent, you know, the American can turn a blind eye when whenever, you know, as long as Israel is existing in the region, whose security is the number one priority for the Americans? Elif Sarakan. What needs to happen is a fewfold. We need to make sure that there isn't a resurgence of ISIS, so therefore the Turkish invasion needs to be unturned and pushed back. But also, most importantly, there needs to be a political solution. The Syrian Democratic Council need to be included in the rewriting of the Syrian constitution. Daniel L. Davis, an untangling of the US from Syria and from the Middle East. Is it actually possible? In no way, shape or form should we abandon the Middle East and just leave it completely. But we absolutely need to completely withdraw military forces from there and instead pay a lot of attention to diplomatic and economic and political engagement and looking always for win-win solutions. That's the best path to stability. That's it for this week on The Real Story. Many thanks to our guests, Daniel L. Davis and Dana Stroll in Washington. In Istanbul, we had Osman Sert and here in the studio with me in London, Elif Sarakan. If you'd like to listen to the programme again or any other from our archive, you can listen back online by searching for BBC The Real Story. From me and the whole team, that was The Real Story for this week. Thank you for listening.